Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On today's episode, we are interviewing Amy Berger. She is the lead nutritionist for the Adapt Your Life Academy, where she helps create course content and has coached thousands of people through implementing low-carb keto diets safely and effectively. She is a certified nutrition specialist who helps people do keto without the crazy. She writes about a wide range of health and nutrition related topics such as insulin, weight loss, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, thyroid function, and more. She has presented internationally on these issues and is author of The Alzheimer's Antidote, The Stall Slayer, and co-author of End Your Carb Confusion that she wrote with Dr. Eric Westman. Today, we are focusing on her book, The Stall Slayer. For any and all of you who are still focused on that number on the scale, this episode is for you. Before we jump into the show, we want to announce that Vera, Dr. Tarman, has joined Amy and Dr. Westman in the Adapt Your Life Academy and is doing a full solo course on food addiction. This will include 18 video lessons, three interactive Zoom meetings, PDFs, and more for $167 US. Here, there is everything you wanted to know about sugar and food addiction. The course starts on May 2nd, and you can enroll at adaptyourlifeacademy.com and get on the wait list because enrollment opens between April 25th to May 1st. Also, Molly and I are excited to announce we will be offering a combined eating disorder and food addiction group starting Mondays this May. We're having a free information session on Monday, April 18th, That's this coming Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We hope you'll join us to see if this group is a good fit for you. You can find out more information in Molly's newsletter, which you can sign up for at unsugaredu.com. Or watch for the post in our Facebook groups, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough, and Sugar Brom in Your Brain. Well, that's enough of me and my announcements. This is a great episode with Amy, so I hope you will all enjoy it. And if you wouldn't mind leaving a review on iTunes for us, that would help us grow our show. Thank you for listening. Oh, thank you so much for being here today with us, Amy. We're super excited to get to have this conversation. We've been waiting for this one for a while. It took us a bit to reach out to you, but thank you so much for getting back to us and being willing to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to happy to do it. Yeah. Well, we'll just jump right in. Can we hear your personal and professional stories and how they came together to get you to where you are today? Yeah, this may be rehashing old stuff that people have heard in other interviews, but for those who kind of don't know who I am, I am a low-carb and keto-oriented nutritionist. I was not always a low-carb and keto-oriented nutritionist. I'm a career changer. Um, I came to this a little later in life. I guess the nutshell version is that I used to be heavier. And I never was living with morbid obesity or anything, but I was heavier. And I was heavier despite eating what I thought was a healthy diet. I was doing lots of exercise. I wasn't afraid of a hard workout. And the weight would not budge no matter what I did. 
And long story short, when I was in college, I came across the Atkins diet and I tried it and it worked, but maybe I was too young or I I wasn't quite ready to make it my life. You know, I wasn't quite ready to just say, this is what I'm going to eat for the rest of my life. And so years later, I got back to it and I really, it's sort of the only thing that ever worked for me. And I could lose weight without starving, without having to live on rice cakes and applesauce. And I was in and out of a lot of jobs that I wasn't fulfilled by, wasn't happy with. And it occurred to me, oh, you know, hey, wait a minute, nutritionist is a career. Like maybe I could do that and I could help other people learn about this awesome low carb diet. So I did go back to graduate school for nutrition. And now I do, you know, I specialize in low carbon keto, but I always try to point out that at this point in the process with everything that I've learned about the biochemistry of of ketogenic diets or just carbohydrate restriction and how this all works, weight loss to me now is one of the least impressive things that this way of eating can do. You know, you can literally reverse type 2 diabetes, you know, normalize your hormones in PCOS, reverse non-alcoholic fatty liver, migraines, hypertension, all this stuff gets better. Oh, you might lose a few pounds along the way too, which not to say that weight loss is not a huge thing, especially if you are living with morbid obesity or something, but there's so many other good reasons to eat this way besides weight loss. And so now that's where I'm at. This is what I do for a career now. <laughs> so I recently uh, downloaded and read your book, The Stall Slayer. And I think it's so important because both Molly and I work frontline with food addiction clients and obviously coming into it, weight is the number one driver. And this journey is a lifelong journey. And so for to say like, you will lose the weight. It's a side effect of a food addiction recovery and carbohydrate, like lowering your restriction, getting off sugar, flour, and processed food. But they're checking in with us maybe every you know, one week or two weeks. And they're saying like, the scale hasn't moved. And so I think it's really important if you would speak to the audience about defining a stall. I mean, you wrote a whole chapter on, is it really a stall? Why is this so important? Yeah, I was just going to say there, there's literally a whole chapter in the book dedicated to this because people really do not understand that just because your scale weight isn't changing, that doesn't mean that so many great things aren't happening on the inside. You probably see this all the time. I see it all the time, more so in women than men, but it is very common for your size and shape to change, even if the scale weight doesn't move. So you could be getting smaller, fitting into smaller clothing. And so weight loss is not this magical process where you start at your heaviest and you just magically slide right down to the goal and every week you lose a few pounds. I wish, I wish it worked that way. It's bumpy. It's a squiggle pattern. You're going to lose a little bit, stay the same, lose a little bit, stay the same, gain a little bit, stay the same. It's a squiggly line, but as long as that squiggle over the long term is trending downward, that's what we want. But so there's going to be some weeks or a month even where the scale weight doesn't change. But again, you might be losing inches or centimeters. People notice that their rings are falling off. So stalls are 
measured, I think, in weeks to months, not days. If it's been three days and you haven't lost a pound, that is not a stall. If it's been two weeks and you haven't lost a pound, that's not a stall either. This is a long-term stagnation, not just in weight, but in everything else too. So if you're taking your measurements or you're trying on a piece of clothing once a month that's tight, if those things are changing, then you are not stalled even if your scale weight isn't moving. And women do not appreciate this anywhere near enough. If you get on the scale every day, you're going to see those little blips, all those squiggles we talked about. And it's fine to weigh yourself every day if you just take it as a piece of data and you just move about your day. If that number wrecks you emotionally, if that number determines your self-worth for the day, or whether you're going to be in a good or bad mood, you are better off. Just the world isn't going to end if you don't know your weight for a few days. I also heard you speak a little bit about connective tissue and, and rebuilding bone mass and how that might actually play into fat. So can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I'll get to that point in a second, but just with the scale weight, People also need to realize that you normally, regardless of your diet and exercise, we fluctuate within like a two to four pound window, just water retention, hormones, the humidity in the atmosphere. So when you see changes in the scale weight, that is not automatically body fat. You haven't automatically gained fat or lost fat, but yeah, the number on the scale doesn't tell you your body fat. It tells you your total weight. So that includes body fat, muscle mass, bone mass, water, organs, all this stuff has weight to it. And so if you know Megan Ramos from the fasting group, she tells a story that they had a client once who was really, truly doing everything right, pulling out all the stops. She was doing great and she was gaining weight and she was so horrified. Like I'm working so hard. What's going on? Well, she had osteoporosis or osteopenia, something. And Megan said, you know, let's just do a bone scan. Let's do a body scan. Let's see what's going on. Turns out this person was rebuilding some bone mass that she had lost over the years. So she was gaining weight, but that is weight you would be happy to gain. You want to gain that kind of weight. So just people really need to understand that the number on the scale does not reflect your body fat. I'm I'm living proof of this myself. Some stuff has happened the last few months. My diet has been good, but some other stuff is happening. And I weigh, my scale weight now is lower than it was a few years ago, but I'm larger because my body composition has shifted. I'm carrying more fat now and less muscle. So my clothing is tight. Some of it doesn't fit, even though I weigh less. The makeup of the weight is different. And people just have like very, they don't appreciate those facts enough. How does that tie in then to these folks who have this number in their head? They have this goal weight. They're absolutely bound and determined to reach this specific number on the scale. Like how do those things tie together? Yeah, I think having a specific number goal weight is really problematic. I mean, first of all, where did that number come from? You know, when people tell me my goal weight is X, What is it about that particular number? How do you think your life is going to be different when that's the number you see on it? Like, what is going to change about your existence? So, and I think the biggest problem with the goal weight is that let's say you get there. Let's say your goal weight is 135 pounds or whatever that is in kilos. You know, you get there 
and you're still miserable. That was the magic number that was supposed to make your life happy and perfect. And it, you got there and you still hate yourself. You know, you still hate what you see in the mirror. And then on the other side, you could not, let's say the goal weight was 135. Let's say you get to 140 and you're looking at, you know, I'm actually totally content right now. I look good. I'm happy with how I feel. Maybe I don't need to lose five more pounds. So I just think aiming for any of those numbers is problematic. I think it's okay to have a range, but even that, because like I was saying, I look very different now, even though the scale weight is less, you don't know how you're going to look at any particular weight. And the fact is, that's what most of us really care about, how we look, how our clothes fit, how we feel in our own skin. And that really has nothing to do with the number you see on the scale. You know, so like you're just you're going to look great. You're going to feel great. And you're still going to feel like a failure because you didn't reach that goal weight when you should be proud and celebrating yourself. Yeah, it's such a true fact, right? Because for any other addiction, when you stop the use of the substance, that's enough. That's the goal. That's amazing in addiction recovery. Whereas this food addiction is still so tied to getting, yeah, I stopped the sugar flour. That was hard, but I'm still not at the weight I need to be. So what are your suggestions about the scale use? Like for clients who maybe have this scale addiction, how would you work with them and maybe what would you suggest? I start out by sort of educating them. Like we said before, your weight does fluctuate regardless of what you're doing. Like your weight, normally the human body fluctuates a little bit from day to day. Of course, the body composition, fat versus muscle versus bone. And I think two other important things. One is, like I said before, if somebody can divorce themselves from the scale, you know, if you weigh yourself every day, but it's not an emotional problem for you, there's nothing wrong with weighing yourself every day. But again, if it just ruins you for the day or the week, if it just wrecks you, that's like being in an abusive relationship and you are choosing to stay. Nobody's forcing you to step on the scale. Every time you step on the scale, yours, yes, please abuse me. Please tell me what an awful, terrible, shameful human I am. Every, you are choosing to be abused and you can choose to stop. Put the scale in the closet, put it in the garage, give it to a friend, tell them not to give it back to you for a month, you know. And then, so I just think you have to know what your relationship is with the scale. And then the biggest thing probably, and it's so hard for people to understand when they are so wedded to the weight, talk about all those fabulous non-scale victories, right? All the amazing things that happen regardless of your weight. So like fewer migraines, clearer skin, no more brain fog. You can go three or four hours between meals without snacking or without even thinking about food. No more joint pain, heartburn is gone. All of these amazing things that happen, or like you were saying specifically in the food addiction world, the first step is like freeing yourself of the food, of the bondage of the food. If you've done that or you're in the process of doing that, you're maybe cutting back or you're binging less, whatever the case is, you celebrate the heck out of yourself for that rather than beating yourself up and feeling like a failure because you haven't lost weight yet. 
it's really, I almost wish scales had never been invented because they do so much emotional damage. It almost makes you wonder like the origin story of that. Maybe I need to do some research into it because it does almost feel like at this point, well, that probably was never the intention at this point. It's really become this, it's become weaponized in so many ways, either for ourselves against ourselves or the diet industry saying if this number isn't there or whatever. And then we have professionals who show up on our feed saying, if you're not weighing yourself every day, or if you're such a quote unquote snowflake that you can't look at your weight, you know, what is that all about? And I think it's just really toxic and harmful. So I appreciate, you know, you saying, put it away, like reevaluate your relationship with that scale. Is it working for you? And if it isn't, let's ignore it for a while. It helps sometimes when I point out to people that A, like I said, they're choosing to get on the scale. Nobody's forcing you to get on the scale every day. And then is it a net positive or a net negative experience? If that experience is only negative, if it only ever makes you feel bad about yourself, makes you feel like a failure, why are you doing it? Like that's in other aspects of your life, you would never continue to do something that you knew was harmful. I mean, like you are volunteering to be hurt. And I just don't know why we do. But sometimes it takes me pointing that out to somebody for them to even realize like, oh, I didn't know how bad this was. No, absolutely. And I think too, in working from that addiction perspective, I mean, typically that is who we work with. I mean, I think that there is an addictive behavior to the scale piece of it, right? And it ties right into that whole mental insanity, right? The chatter and it's part of the gymnastics. And so, you know, that really brings us into our next question, you know, is, you know, how do you work with clients who have sugar food addiction? You know, do you do anything different with them than you would with somebody who's just trying to maybe be low carb keto? Yeah. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, it really is always individualized. You know, you can start with a framework of like, okay, maybe eat these things and kind of don't eat those things. So many people when they adopt a very low carb or ketogenic diet, the cravings just go away. They're just like within days, they just never have sugar. They never have the bread, whether it may be sugar or starch, it could be flour. They just, it's just gone. The veil is lifted and they're good. Give me the steak, give me the broccoli. And for other people, it remains a real challenge and it's really hard. And just like in normal food, or I shouldn't say that, but like regular Western type diet, There are people out there, I mean, I don't know who they are, but like they can eat one cookie and close the package. So just like in the keto world, there are people or low carb, there are people who can have the mocked up low carb versions of things. They can have an almond flour brownie or a coconut flour cookie, one or two, and be good to go. A lot more of us still have the same addictive tendency. If we would eat the whole sleeve of regular cookies, we're going to eat the whole tray of keto cookies. So for the people that really are addicted or have that like intense, you know, binging or whatever, I do think it's best if those people can, don't kid yourself, don't dabble in the keto versions of all the things you were eating before. Don't do the keto brownies and cupcakes and granola and ice cream. First of all, none of that is as low in carbohydrate as we like to think it is. (laughs) And there's always going to be people for whom this doesn't work. But for a lot of people, being completely, totally free of that stuff is what breaks the craving, is what breaks you of the stuff. Because like I co-wrote a book with Dr. Eric Westman called End Your Carb Confusion. And in that book, we wrote something to the effect of 
when you have a craving and you eat the thing to satisfy the craving, it doesn't satisfy that beast and make it go away. It makes it hungrier for more. You've given it the signal like, oh, every time you want cookies, you get cookies. And so the way to stop that is to stop eating the stuff. And you might have to white knuckle it for a few days, but once you're over that hump, but when you keep feeding it, when you keep having those little keto treats, it keeps you addicted. And for many people that works, just cut it out of your life. But then there's always people that it's, it's just almost impossible to do that. Yeah. And with those individuals, sometimes we have to try a more harm reduction approach, but I absolutely agree. You know, every time you feed into that obsession or compulsion, you are just reinforcing that behavior. Yeah. So we're wondering if you have seen individuals that experience what we've seen as a phenomenon of volume addiction. We have individuals who do stop with the keto treats and anything processed, and then we see them over consuming, you know, protein, veg, and fat. Have you seen this? And what do you suggest for these individuals? I consider myself a volume addict. So not only have I seen it, I live it myself. I do think recently I've, and I don't know why I've kind of gotten out of that, which is a a miracle to me, but I, I know exactly what this is like. Yeah. Just because you're eating a low carb diet or a paleo diet or whatever, it kills me when people say nobody binges on steak, nobody binges on broccoli. Oh, you want to bet? Maybe it depends on how we define binge, but yeah, there's a volume where we just want to be stuffed or we just don't want to stop eating. Even if the food is a perfectly, you know, wholesome, nutritious, real food, that's harder. I, the first thing I think, and I, if somebody's brand new to low carb, most people who come to me are already doing this and they're just having trouble. But if somebody's brand new or even the people that are struggling to kind of reset them, I tell them at first, I don't care how much you eat. I want you to eat as much as you want, as often as you want, as long as it's this type of food, as long as you're avoiding that, like just break yourself of the carbs, then we'll start tweaking the quantities and the timing. But just to get yourself used to eating this food and like avoiding that, I don't want you to fast. I don't like just, I don't want you weighing the food. Just eat, eat as much as you want, as long as it's low in carbs. So I think if somebody is overdoing, however we define overeating something like pork chops or burger patties or, you know, lettuce and zucchini, I would rather they do that. I would rather you overconsume those foods than still be chained to the junk. Because I, I just think metabolically and hormonally, you are going to be better off doing that than being on the blood sugar and insulin roller coaster. But eventually, you're going to have to break that. And sometimes people just do that naturally because your appetite really does decrease and the hunger decreases. But that's great if you're only eating because you're hungry. You know what? Like, well, okay. It doesn't really matter if this makes me less hungry, if I eat for 86 reasons besides hunger. So I hate to recommend this, but I know in the food addiction world, it's, it's necessary. Sometimes there is a place for weighing and measuring food. And I, I kind of like to use it as a last resort, but I think there's a place for that just so you can get a sense of like, well, what is six ounces of something? What is four ounces of something? And anyone who listens to your show already knows, but I just want to reinforce 
to anyone out there listening or watching, you are so not alone. This is whether it is volume addiction or the sugar or food addiction. It's so prevalent and we just don't talk about it because everybody's ashamed. You know, like this is, you're just not alone. Not only do we not talk about it, but then when we do have guests and we ask about it, you know, it's often like it's kind of 50 50 probably at this point. If we went back and looked at all the different guests and re listened to those interviews, you know, there are the ones who don't believe in it, but they're actually very few. Mostly we run into people who are like, oh, this is a brand new phenomenon. I've never heard of such a thing. I don't know what that would be, which is just super surprising to me. And I don't know if they just are not seeing past, you know, whatever it is they're specifically researching or clinically, whatever, or maybe they're not even asking their clients about it and their clients aren't offering that information. So, which then takes me back to what you were saying, like, maybe it's just because we're so ashamed and we're not talking about it. But I wonder if then, you know, I've heard you talk about wise food choices and and I really love that concept. It, It speaks to me from a DBT kind of perspective of like using my wise mind. I've got my rational mind and I've got my emotional mind. And is this a wise food choice for me? And I wonder if that can also apply then to like the volume piece, you know, so you speak about this, you know, instead of using should or shouldn't or good or bad. And will you talk a little bit about that framework and and what makes it more helpful when we're on this food addiction recovery journey? Yeah. Yeah. Just one sec. I want to just say something about what you said with, you know, other professionals or clinicians who are like, oh, food addiction, what's that? You know, is that a thing? I think anyone who doesn't recognize that this is a real thing is just fortunate that they don't experience it themselves. They don't know what it's like, but I don't really get that because I'm not a gambling addict. I'm not like a pornography addict or an internet addict, but I believe that those things exist. I believe that other people might have a problem with those things. So I don't have to have lived the experience to believe that other people are living that experience. So anyway, but yeah, it's it's weird that people are like shocked that food addiction is a thing. But yeah, so with the food, I just think, and we see this unfortunately probably more in the keto world than anywhere else, the shaming and the morality around food, good food, bad food. I was bad today. I was good today. It's just food. You know, what you eat and how much you eat is not a sign of your worth as a human. And I think it's a learning process. We just have to like, even if you might make a choice to eat something that you know is not good for you. Oh, I don't know what that's like. I've never done that. You know, you might deliberately choose to eat something and it's fine, but accept the consequences. Take the reason, you know what? I'm going to eat this thing and I know I'm going to have a migraine later or I'm going to break out in pimples tomorrow. Or just even if you don't have a physical symptom, you might just beat yourself up emotionally an hour later. And ideally you wouldn't eat the thing, but if you do, just accept it and move on, you know, or learn from it and move on. I just think the, okay, I'm going to have to clean up the language. There's somebody I listened to who said a really helpful thing and you could apply it to anything, not just eating something off plan or something that you know is maybe not the best choice for you. (laughs) She said, if you have to eat a poop sandwich, you don't have to pee all over it too. So if you've already done something that like, you know, is maybe not the best and you don't feel great about it, don't spend the next 10 hours beating yourself up over it. You're going to make the bad situation worse. 
just you did it, you're a human and you move on. Like you don't have to like wallow in the self-pity and self-hatred the rest of the day. Yes, that's so true because it really just does lead to like writing the whole day off, right? Because, oh, I've done this and now just forget about the rest of the day and maybe I'll start tomorrow. But for some people and especially the people we work with, that's not always possible, right? If they do that, but it's very much more possible to say, oh, okay, I understand. Maybe I was having some emotional eating problem and I was feeling stressed and that's why I ate that thing. But I'm going to make sure I have a really good next abstinent meal. So thank you very much for that. I absolutely agree with that. I'm wondering if we haven't really had anyone on the show that talked to us and our audience about sugar alcohols. And I really loved what you wrote in the book of the Stall Slayer, just specifically because I think people think, oh, sugar alcohols, that's a free pass. And I really think that it's important for the listeners to know that that's not always the case. Yeah, I wish they were a free pass. So this is one of those areas where it really, again, comes down to the individual. The different kinds of sugar alcohols themselves, for Pete, for anyone that doesn't know sugar alcohols, it's the things that end in etol, erythritol, xylitol, maltitol, all the tols, etols. They're all different. Some of them barely affect blood sugar and insulin. Some of them affect it a lot more than we realize. Maybe not as much as regular sugar or corn syrup or something, but they're not inert. They don't just do nothing. And so not only are the different types of sugar alcohols different, but the way each of us responds to them is different. There might be somebody that can have a big old pile of maltitol or you know xylitol and do fine. And this person over there, it's a disaster. So I think this is where we run into a lot of problems with things like the keto ice cream and the granola and the whatever, where, you know, and this is also a problem with, with net carbs versus total carbs. I don't know if you ever get into that, but, you know, I learned so much from Dr. Westman and his approach has always been total carbs, count total carbs, because that sort of automatically rules out or eliminates all those sugar alcohol foods. And regardless even of the blood sugar and insulin and how that affects not only weight loss, but all the other metabolic stuff that could happen, that perpetuates the addiction. Okay, so you don't trade a sugar addiction for an erythritol addiction. Don't trade a sugar addiction for a Splenda addiction. You know, it's like, I just, but, but again, if for the people that can have that stuff, great, or like we, the harm reduction, I do think there's absolutely a place for sugar-free treats or, you know, sugar, alcohol, sweetened stuff, maybe not only as a transition step while you're getting used to low carb, but if you are the person who can have one or two keto cookies or maybe once a week, twice a week, and still get the results you want, it's fine. But I just think that some of those sugar alcohols affect people a lot more than they realize. And that's one of the things that I recommend to break a stall is if you're using a lot of that stuff, cut it out for three weeks and see what happens. Yes, such a great point. I also think what I loved about your book was you talk about stress right? And and we are, live in a society of chronic stress all the time and how stress can be a blocker in a stall if we want to be on our way and, and that's due to cortisol. And so can you speak a little bit about why having higher levels of cortisol can really stall the weight loss and keep us, you know, stuck 
in kind of that maybe a weight stall for a while. And so what you would also recommend like for people who may be experiencing high cortisol levels. Yeah. I have to say when somebody comes to me and that's the main issue is they're, they're stuck, like really stalled, not the fake, you know, one week stall stress and cortisol and stuff like that is not the first place I look. I'm always going to look first at the food. Okay. What are you actually eating? Cause most of the time that's the problem. Sometimes people take medications that interfere with weight loss. That's a very common thing. So that's kind of the next place I go. If we've ruled out all the other stuff, then I'll kind of look more to this lifestyle stuff. And cortisol raises blood sugar. That's like one of its jobs. It raises blood sugar, which is potentially going to interfere with some of the things you want to do. And I think, actually, I was thinking of lack of sleep, not cortisol. Well, cortisol does raise blood sugar, but we could talk about lack of sleep. It all kind of goes hand in hand. I think it can make you more sensitive to carbohydrate, for lack of a better word. Like your body is not necessarily going to handle or metabolize the carbohydrate the same way it would if you were really well rested, getting quality sleep, not as stressed out. But you know, there are people who live incredibly stressful lives who lose weight with no problem. So it's almost like it's not the stress per se, but how you respond to it, how you react to it. But I mean, we know there are, you know, people that go on the steroid medications or the cortisone and they gain weight and they, they, they notice their blood sugars higher because that's what cortisol does. So I think, you know, when people have to go on those medications, we tell them, well, it's, it's temporary. You know, usually people are not on those forever. Um, sometimes they are. We tell them, look, yeah, your blood sugar is going to be a little higher for now. You might gain a few pounds, but when you're off that course of the drug, things will get back to normal. And I think when you have those issues, whether it's the medication or your own lifestyle, just is very stressful, it's that much more important to take really good care of yourself with food and with sleep and all that. But because you're already in a difficult situation, don't make it worse by eating junk all the time. And now you're on the blood sugar roller coaster again, like you're just throwing fuel on the fire. Cortisol is an issue, but I honestly think it's just not the first place I look. I don't ignore it, but like, I don't want people just, well, I can't lose weight because I'm so stressed out. You know, I don't know. It can almost become a scapegoat instead of scaling. Like you said, like kind of going back to the beginning and looking at first, like, what are you actually eating? Are you sleeping? Are you right? Like getting outside ever? Do you just sit in front of a desk all day long? Like the most of us, you know, most of us have been doing since March, 2020, like, yeah, right. Going back to basics. And so it really makes me wonder, like, what are some other common roadblocks that you see with your clients and what are some of the solutions that you've, you know, come up with? Are we talking specifically about weight loss or food addiction or? Yeah, I think any, like when they come to you and they say, I want X, but they're not getting it, whatever change it is that they're looking for. Yeah. With weight loss, besides the carbs and the net carbs and all that, a lot of people are overdoing fat because they've heard out the keto is high fat, high fat. It's keto is not high fat. What it is, is very, very low carb. So, you know, people think like fat is unlimited and it's really not. It's really not something I see all the time. And it's actually, I'm writing my next book is going to be about this is thyroid. Thyroid is a huge player in weight loss. 
So that's, I mean, but that's specific to weight loss. Looking at the larger picture of of the addiction or the self-sabotage, I mean, you know, entire books have been written about that. I just think we get into, like, and I, I think Dr. Tarman talks about this a lot too, not just food addiction or sugar addiction, but behavior addiction, process addiction. So a lot of the people, myself included, that are like nighttime eaters, we're just so in the habit. It's almost like a programmed physical response that I'm going to get up and go to the kitchen at 11 at night. I'm not hungry. I've just practiced this pattern for so long that it's like, it's just an automatic thing. I don't even ask myself if I'm hungry or if I'm tired or if I want food. I'm just at the fridge. That's really, really hard to break because it is so familiar and so comfortable. It doesn't mean you can't break it, but I mean, the first step is to be aware, is to be aware that this is just a pattern that you've gotten yourself into. But that I think is one of the things that stands in the way is the addiction to the behavior and not even just the addiction to that physical action of going to get food. You could be addicted to negative thinking. I mean, ask me how I know that. Like you could be addicted to telling yourself those self-defeatist things. That's incredibly hard to get out of. That requires deliberate effort to like change your focus, to deliberately select different thoughts. And that's, I mean, that's a long-term learning process. You're not just going to okay, I've been telling myself what a failure I am for 40 years. That's not just going to change tomorrow. So it's, it's physical, it's mental, it's all of it. So with that being said, you know, I've definitely heard you talk about the importance of having a group. What have you seen with your clients or even yourself in terms of progress when you engage or don't engage with a group? Yeah. You know, some people are loners and they do great by themselves. Groups, I think for those that need it and for those who thrive on it, the accountability piece is huge. When you have a place to come and say, I've been doing really well this week, or I fell face first into the donuts this week, like I'm not doing well this week, whatever it is, you have a place to be honest. And hopefully it's a safe, supportive, non-judgmental place where you feel free to be honest. And I think other than the accountability, there's the support piece of people either, you know, cheerleading with you, celebrating how well you're doing, or when you're down in the dumps, helping to lift you up. And that can happen. Like what I see in the the groups that I work with, there's two different things that happen, both of which I think are like equally important. One is the sort of, you know, just get right back on the horse. No big deal. Don't beat yourself. It's just food right back to normal. Like just no, you're not a failure. You just ate a thing. But then, and there's that like loving, gentle encouragement piece. But then sometimes we kind of need the reality check. We need the tough love. We need the like, get on the program. What are you doing? You know, like, so, and they're equally important. They just may be applicable in different situations. Because I know for me, sometimes I need the support and the gentle, and sometimes I need the smack upside the face. (laughs) So... 
Right. We often find that the group provides insight into behaviors that you may not even be fully aware of, especially with this disease, which is a disease of the mind, right? And can really trick our thinking and make us forget that we have the disease of addiction. So we're wondering if you have received at any point, any kind of pushback from, you know, working like in the low carb ketogenic field, maybe with food addiction, any pushback from colleagues with the theoretical framework of the way you work with clients? I've been really fortunate, but I've been low carb the whole time. Like I, so when I went to school for nutrition, I was already eating low carb for a few years. I didn't have to unlearn. So I wasn't like going against the grain, no pun intended. I wasn't going against my training or, you know, what I had learned. I've, and I'm for better or worse, because it's kind of an echo chamber, I'm like immersed in the low carb world. So I don't even really have a ton of interaction, you know, with professionals that don't know how effective low carb is. Where it becomes difficult is when I'm working with with a, a client or even in the groups and their doctor is trying to talk them out of it, or especially, you know, on low carb, some people's cholesterol goes up and that's like, ah, my doctor told me not to do this crazy diet. That's where it becomes hard, but I don't, you know, I'm in private practice by myself. So I'm not like with a group of people where maybe there's a vegan person or a high carb person. So I've been pretty lucky in that, but I, I shy away from confrontation. I don't deliberately say controversial things to get clicks or likes. You know, you'll see a lot of other people do. And I don't want any part of that. I don't want to stir up trouble. I'm not trying to like defend low carb. I'm just trying to help people quietly. (laughs) You know, I just, other people want to fight those battles. That's fine. You know, I love it. Program of attraction, not promotion. Yeah. (laughs) Really tease program language. Definitely. I agree. You know, it's just, it's always interesting to hear what people have to say because you are, even if you're trying to do it quietly, you are putting yourself out there as like, this is the framework from which I work. And sometimes without even provoking it, it still can come. Yeah. I try to be clear. Like, I think maybe for people that follow me closely, they'll, they'll have seen this. I've never said that low carb or keto is the best way or the only way. You know, I I hear Dr. Tarman, I know I just mentioned veganism. I don't really think it's a great way to go, but if somebody's happy doing that and they feel well, okay, you know, or like high carb, low fat, whatever. I don't care what anybody eats. Like you do you. I care. If somebody's paying me to help them, I probably care more about that. But even then, that person is a grown autonomous adult. They get to make their own decisions about food. All I can do is give them information and support and help. They're the one that's going to decide what they're going to put in their mouth. And so I, because I don't think keto is the best way or the only way. I think it happens to be really powerful for a lot of things. But, you know, take a look around the world. There's billions of healthy people who don't eat low-carb diets. So, like, I think I don't get a lot of pushback because I'm not out there saying, you know, bread is poison and, like, and look at the carnivore movement. A broccoli will kill you. Like, I'm never going to say that. So you can't, you can't really come after someone who's not saying anything all that controversial. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no. I'll, say, I'll say that saturated fat is not bad for you. It's not clogging your arteries, but, you know... I don't know if anyone cares about that anymore. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. So when you're not out there being dogmatic, like you said, it's hard to have a target painted on your back. Yeah. 
Excellent. So we have a few kind of like rapid fire questions that we have for you that came from, from clients. And the first one I'm a little bit partial to as a person with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So we're wondering, do you have special recommendations for women with this syndrome on their journey of food addiction recovery, because we know it can increase sugar cravings, that kind of thing, you know, or even from the low carb keto perspective, like even if they're just trying to lose weight, maybe they've managed the addiction piece of it. And now they're really trying to work on shedding some of those extra pounds. Yeah. So I think PCOS, I would definitely just focus on keeping the carbs really low because I think the main driver of the hormonal abnormalities in PCOS is chronically high insulin. Many people don't know the insulin is what's causing the high testosterone in women. Then you have the facial hair and the acne and the irregular menstruals. It's all coming from the insulin affecting all those other hormones. And so we control the insulin by controlling the carbs mostly beyond that. And people typically get really, really good results. There's some interesting research with supplementing inositol, which is it used to be a B vitamin, like I for B, whatever they called it. It's no longer considered a vitamin. I don't know how much inositol helps on top of a low carb diet, because most of the research has been done in people eating a sort of standard diet. It couldn't hurt. I don't think it would hurt you to add some inositol on top of the low carb diet, but the carbohydrate restriction is what's going to do the heavy lifting there. I really think it's just so power. I can't promise you it's going to like totally reverse the PCOS, but I mean, there's research now really showing some dynamite improvement in those hormones. I had another listener or client's question about, you know, hair loss and they started this journey and they do have some thyroid issue. And I know that this was something that you spoke personally about in some of your blogs. They wondered if, you know, you kind of figured out or has the hair improved or what are some things that you would suggest for them if they are experiencing this when they're first transitioning to like low carb keto, I guess they're looking for some hope. Yeah. So there's a couple of things going on there. We'll put thyroid on hold for a sec. Hair loss tends to occur anytime you lose weight relatively quickly. That's not unique to keto. It's actually, it, the, the medical term is called telogen effluvium. It's like a big telogen effluvium. And it's sort of an, I don't want to say it's normal, but it's expected if you've lost a lot of weight or it's, it's the body's response to stress. But I, I hesitate to use that word because like if you're overweight, losing weight is maybe a good thing. And so it's a good kind of, but internally to the body, it's a big change. It's like, ah, what's going on? Let's shed hair. If it's only come from that, yeah, there is hope for most people that hair loss is temporary and it grows back and it grows back healthier. So that's a good thing. Thyroid is a separate thing where it's typically... If you need thyroid medication, once you get the hormone level right, the hair loss stops. And I think it's a mixed bag as to whether or not it grows back. Unfortunately, I'm still having a lot of hair shedding. And I, I know I have long hair, but it's very thin. Like I just, I mean, like it's hard to see, but it's like, I mean, you can see my whole damn scalp. Like it's just, it's long, but it's very thin. Whereas like my niece, her hair must weigh four pounds. Like the ponytail holder is like this big around her hair. And me, it's like this itty bitty hair. So it's a little scary. I don't want to scare people, but I have hope. I have hope that I'm going to figure this out. 
out. But yeah, if so, the hair loss from weight loss is not unique to keto. That would happen on any like so the telogen effluvium. People have it usually after giving birth because it's such a shock to the anytime the body gets a shock. Sometimes you'll see that, but it's it stops. Thanks so much for answering that. I had another question about how do we increase our basal metabolic rate? So we have a lot of individuals who, you know, have a set food plan, but then maybe am I not eating enough food? Could that be possible? Or what are some other ways that you might suggest increasing basal metabolic rate just so that we're burning more calories? This is very controversial. And I think, I wish there was more research on it because I don't think there's a whole lot of research. We know that when people lose weight, when they diet, diet meaning calorie restrict, the metabolic rate does slow down. This is not news. This is not a surprise. This has been well known for a long time. Supposedly, if you lose the weight on a lower carb diet, that metabolic slowdown is less than it is if you just like starve yourself or go on a really, really low calorie diet. And I think that has to do with some of the hormones and some of how the physiology is different on a lower carb diet. It's really hard. I do think it's hard to regain that metabolic rate. I think it's critical to build muscle I hate saying that because I hate lifting. I hate it, but I see it as like a necessary evil. Like you, it's something you kind of have to do. The more muscle you have, muscle is very metabolically active. They, so I heard somebody once say it's like um, metabolically expensive. It costs a lot just to have the muscle on your body. And so if that muscle basically requires energy just to be there, you can sort of get away with eating more the more muscle you have. And I think it's because it probably contributes to the metabolic rate, but it's controversial. I don't think there's not a whole lot of data on, okay, let's say you've had this metabolic slowdown after a period of weight loss. You can either just continue eating less and less and less for the rest of your life, or how can we bump this back up? And for some people, I think you need super controversial, wait till my book comes out. Some people might need a little, like a low dose of thyroid medicine because that's mostly what it is. It's a decrease in the T3 hormone, which is your basically sets that basal metabolic rate. I, I wish I could give a better answer. I don't want to say anything that I know is false, but I just think, or, or that I don't know is true for certain. It's hard. It's really hard. I do no, I do think I wrote about this in the thyroid books, not out yet, but I have a whole chapter on weight loss. And I do think this is the biggest problem in people that have yo-yoed over the years. Because each time you go through that cycle of gaining and losing and gaining and losing, that metabolic rate is getting lower and lower because it never quite recovers. So it's a little lower, maybe it recovers a little, then you're dieting it again, it recovers a little, you're dieting it. Each time it just gets lower. I think this is why sort of the middle-aged postmenopausal women have the most difficult time. That's not the only reason, but they are the ones who are most likely to have been on that yo-yo for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. That makes so much sense. I appreciate you speaking about that. Also in the book, I saw keto can make you as lean as you can be, but that might not be as lean as you want to be. And I just, A, I loved it because I think sometimes we come from a, a disordered eating past when we get to this journey. And do you think that, you know, some of this can lead to just too much restriction and in that relentless pursuit of thinness, do you see that sometimes? 
all the time, not just sometimes. Yeah. There's a few things going on there. I think many people gravitate toward low carb or keto already having a disordered mindset or distorted, distorted thinking about food. And so they're coming into it already with a fraught relationship with food or their weight. And then sometimes people come into this with a totally sort of clean slate mindset and they go down a few too many of those rabbit holes and they kind of develop orthorexia or like an obsession, like an abject terror of certain foods, like just this fear, this anxiety of certain foods. So it works both ways. And then I wish I had coined that phrase that you just said, I got it from somebody else. Low carb or keto can make you as lean as you can be. That might not be as lean as you want to be. That doesn't mean you can't get leaner, but the food piece alone isn't going to get you there. You might have to pull out some more stops that are not sustainable for the long term, not healthy. You know, frankly, some of the people that we see online are not being completely honest with us about what they are actually doing behind the scenes. Here's my keto meal. Here's my awesome thing. Oh, but by the way, I also fast three days a week and run 72 miles a day. That's the piece that they're not honest about. They're making you think that that physique is coming only from their diet, and it's not. And so when you feel like a failure because you don't look that way, well, they're doing some stuff that they're not coming clean with you about, some of which is not the healthiest thing to do. And that's that's fine. Again, they're an adult. They get to choose what they want to do. If they want to do that harmful stuff, do it. But don't fool your fans and followers into thinking that your keto cheeseburger casserole thing is the reason you are so slim. (laughs) Sorry, that was like, that's a rant. I get, it's just, this is a big deal, as you know. It is a very big deal. And you don't ever have to apologize for being passionate about what you believe in. We're right there with you. And I would venture to say the vast majority of our listeners will be absolutely nodding their heads in agreement as they're listening to you say that, you know. David Wiss, I don't know if you're aware of who he is. He's another registered dietitian in the field. He bridges the gap between eating disorders and food addiction, but he made a social media post the other day about notice who has all of the follows and who has all of the whatever, right? Like notice who has the most, the biggest audience because they're showing up telling you what to do. Meanwhile, like you said, behind scenes, they're doing something else. Their goal is to be an influencer. Their goal is to get as many clicks, as many as whatever. But those of us who are showing up and giving you real solutions and we're asking you to do the work, meanwhile, we're showing you our real lives. We don't get that because we're recovering in reality and this is hard and we're not perfect and we don't have the magic pill or the magic answer or the whatever. And so, no, I think that, I think you're right on the money with that. So, okay, just a few more questions for you then. So we heard you're ha- you have a new book coming out. Do you know when we should expect that? I don't know when. So I'm going to self-publish it. So as soon as we're ready to go, it'll be out there. My manuscript was done, but then I teamed up with a PhD nurse practitioner who has a ton of experience. In fact, I cited some of her research in the book. And so she's coming on board. She's got to tinker with it now and add her pieces to it. So it's going to take a lot longer, but hopefully it'll be a much stronger book. I hope to have it out sometime this summer at the latest. So maybe sometime this summer, I hope. Okay. Are there any and that's, other- that's actually only about thyroid, like not really anything to do with low carb or food at all. Oh, excellent. 
Yeah. And then are there any other projects that you have coming up this year that we should be on the lookout for? I don't have anything else myself, but I, um, I work with Dr. Westman for this company called Adapt Your Life. And we have the flagship course. It's an online course that you can do from anywhere in the world. It's called the Keto Made Simple Masterclass. Our sixth round is, I, I don't know when this show will air, but our sixth round will be starting in April. So that's coming up soon. The website is really long, but it's adaptyourlifeacademy.com, adaptyourlifeacademy.com. And the big news is we are working with Dr. Vera Tarman. The course, we are like literally as we speak, hard at work creating a course on sugar and food addiction because it is not talked about enough. In, people make it sound like, oh, you just go keto and everything's magical, if only. So it's like a huge gaping hole that nobody's talking Well, you're talking about food addiction, but very few other people are. So like, we're just thrilled that Dr. Tarman is going to help us with that. So it's going to help so many people. I don't know when that's going to be done. I think we're aiming for May, sometime in May, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I know she was so excited to be included in that after we interviewed Dr. Westman, uh, they kind of got talking and it was nice just to, to see that this missing piece will fit in so well. And it kind of makes it almost mainstream, which, you know, we've always trying to been getting into. So where can our listeners find you? So my website kind of needs an overhaul, but you know, it's toitnutrition.com, T-U-I-T, toitnutrition.com. Same thing on social media. My handle is toitnutrition. So that's the name of my YouTube channel. I use that on Twitter. I do have Instagram, but I almost never, I, Instagram is like a young person's thing. I don't understand it. It's a, it's a mystery to me. I'm a Twitter girl. So really my biggest thing is Twitter, but I definitely recommend people check out that adaptyourlifeacademy.com. That's, we've got, there's a whole course based on my book, The Soul Slayer. I'm not, I, I think we may be running that again this summer. Awesome. Yeah. I've definitely had some clients uh, participate in Adapt Your Life and it made some really, really big uh, oh, changes and differences in their right. food addiction recovery as well. Right. So we do have a signature question and uh -oh. it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? Ooh, I guess that whole thing, you are not the only one. You think this crazy behavior you have, you think this inexplicable compulsion to eat, the fact that you, Amy Berger, have thrown food in the garbage and then gone back for more, you're not crazy, you're not broken, you're not weird, and there's a lot of other people out there doing it and just nobody's talking about it. I, mean, I wish I could give myself advice. Oh, here's how you totally break that overnight. No, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, no, I just, because it's so lonely when you think you're the only one, you feel so lonely. And that's why I love the questionnaires that are used to like diagnose food addiction, because those questions, if I was the only one or Mary or Joe or whatever was the only one, there wouldn't be questionnaires where they're asking thousands of people these questions. Have you ever thrown food out and then gotten it back out of the garbage? Have you stolen food? Have you eaten frozen food, burned food? Like, have you ever, you know, when people say, oh, if it's not in your house, you won't eat it. Have you ever gotten in the car at midnight to go to the store? Like, these questions wouldn't exist if we didn't already know people engage in these behaviors. So it's not something to joke about and take lightly, but just know you're not the only one. This is a thing, you know? 
Thanks, Amy, so much. That was so great. Like, such a great answer. I always love to hear how our guests answer that question. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for being here today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. You guys are doing awesome work. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.